The Tea Stop In podcast is inspired by a long tradition of relaxed conversations about the film industry and the craft of cinematography. As a working cinematographer, producer and colourist, Ben Allen, ACSCSI, gets to have conversations with some of the most exciting people in the industry today. And we're inviting you to listen in. The Tea Stop In. I'm Ben Allen and welcome to this special episode of The Tea Stop In. Brought to you with the support of our sponsors, MZ Online Training and ARRI Australia. For Clara Chong and I, running a production company together and raising a family together has meant that we've been increasing the amount of production and post-production that we've been doing at home over the last decade. In the current situation, we've been getting more and more inquiries from friends around the world about how to make this work and what's possible. Clara, welcome back to the Tea Stop Inn. Thanks, Ben. Happy to be here. Now... The world has definitely found itself in a strange situation all of a sudden, hasn't it? Very strange. I mean, there are so many photos people are posting at the moment of, okay, before we had any inkling of any of this and now. Yeah. Now, we, we're finding ourselves in an interesting situation where what we've been doing for a number of years now in bringing so much of our work in-house, we're suddenly finding ourselves, instead of being outliers and a bit radical, it's ahead of the curve. It's a strange place to be, actually, because I think for a long time, people kind of didn't know what to make of us, I guess. Mm. And we're producing high quality material, but it's that thing of, okay, but if you're working from home, are you yeah. legit? Yeah. So it's been an in, it's interesting times now when everyone is faced in the same position and trying to figure out how to keep producing content at a world-class level. And I guess that's one of the big things, that it has been possible for a very long time to produce content entirely at home in a contained way. But it used to be only possible to do that to a certain level of quality. Exactly, and that's certainly where uh, technology has improved a hundredth millionth fold, (laughs) really. And, you know, for us as well, the evolution of working from home came in steps, you know. When we first met, what, 18 years ago, it was, okay, let's do little passion projects on the side together. Mm. And then as, you know, the industry goes through its ups and downs, we found during the quiet times we started applying the skills that we'd learned professionally on set or in post and learning from, you know, the top editors, colorists, etc., how to craft a film the way that we wanted to. And for me, as a writer-director, learning what, was involved in the post side that would help me better prepare as a director. We set up a production company together. I think that was a f- uh, first step. Mm. And then we, uh, you know, then we knew that we wanted to get married and have kids. And so we discovered the reality of having kids. Meant <laughs> 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 that, whoa, okay, uh, how do you keep a production company going with newborn babies? Mm. And first one newborn and then having two kids, a toddler and a, or actually a four-year-old then and a newborn baby with the older start, you know, starting school. It was just an evolution. And so we learned to just keep adapting and being nimble, I guess. Mm. And we had to make a decision very early on 
whether or not we were going to want to become a big company or remain small. But the key thing for us, I think, is the goal stay the same. We always wanted to do big projects. Uh, but we wanted to be doing the creative work. Exactly. And we wanted to figure managing out... managing other people who were doing that. Exactly. So we didn't want to have that admin and yet at the same time we wanted to have the flexibility to pick and choose our own crew. So we knew we had to be a production company. It's always about the people you work with and mm. we always wanted to maintain a set that was collaborative and that people didn't feel like they were going to get yelled at or yeah, have... Not adversarial. Yeah, the stresses that I think uh, the, you know people were just starting to touch on before all of this hit and the mental issues that mm. the film industry uh, or any of these kind of arts industries face. And so that's always been a very big factor with us and we knew that we didn't want to work that way. So it's just over the last decades of working in the industry that we've discovered our own little way. So we have always been kind of part of the industry, but also... Kind like, of operating in parallel exactly. in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, not outsiders, but not exactly the, I guess, the so-called in-group. Because part of that is because we do have familiarity with the conventional way of doing things. So we do know what it's like to be in a conventional edit suite, to be in a conventional colour grade in the... Paint by the hour. Paint by the hour. (laughs) And with all the resources of that. So as we've gone further and further into doing things hands-on and contained and now at home, we've been able to do that with the perspective of having had the experience of doing it the conventional way. And I guess that's kind of been quite an advantage in terms of working out how to attack things because it means we're we're looking at the problems from the point of view of will the conventional approach work if not then how do we do it differently exactly there's no right way or or wrong way and i guess also what's been really interesting is because we do go on like or we did go on location a lot (laughs) (laughs) and then with kids we had to figure out how do we make this work so a lot of it was choosing projects wherever possible where we didn't have sync dialogue especially when there were babies i remember on the taronga project wild squad adventures I thought, okay, we had a drone day and I thought that'd be the perfect day to have our then one-and-a-half-year-old with us on set. Mm. And we did organise a little bit of babysitting, you know, through a good friend who happened to live right near the zoo (laughs) (laughs) to be there just in case. But it's like we turned up and this is before the day even got started. At the car park, I stepped out and then our daughter just started (laughs) screaming like she was crying and it was just like, Oh, okay. We can't even get to the drone day, let alone. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's that's a good reminder of the fact that one thing that parenthood and filmmaking have in common is that they both require constant problem solving. Yes, and there's always yeah unexpected things, things. unexpected things that happen. You can't plan what the kids are going to do. You can't mm. plan just like you can't plan what the weather's going to do. Exactly, and you do learn just to have to go with the flow so much much and work out you know what are your backup solutions what are your backup plans and that's how we make it work it's always knowing that there's going to be something unexpected so not to get thrown by that and just kind of go all right look at it in situ as it happens and go okay well how do we do deal with this yep Uh, people can probably hear the kids in the background now because this is the reality right now and usually in this situation if we were recording a podcast here which we do fairly regularly Clara would have the kids in the bedroom with the door closed and be keeping them 
occupied and entertained. Or would be out. <laughs> or, or, or more often than not, you'd be out. Yeah. Now, obviously, in this situation right now, neither of those are an option. So the kids are in the background here and that's the reality yeah. of it. Well, they're Zooming. You know, the six-year-old is Zooming with her friends yep. and then we've got the 11-year-old Zooming with his friends. So it's all kind of... It's well, welcome to 2020. <laughs> well, yeah, during COVID-19, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think one of the major turning points for us in terms of bringing the work in-house was bringing the colour grade in-house. And when we started experimenting with that, it, that was really radical and out there. That's true. That was during the, our Melbourne era of doing big TV commercials. Yeah. And I remember, gosh, for every render, we'd have to wait hours on end sometimes. Yep, and to see seconds of material. Yeah. And you but look it was, back as well yeah. and you realise, gosh, it, it, the skills you learn from just doing it and yep. that I, I don't think that can be expressed enough how important that is because you don't get better until you're practising all the time. And so we also made a decision, no matter what the project, we were going to give it a complete finish. Uh, colour grade, sound design, sound mix. So it didn't matter if it was a tiny little corporate job. It didn't matter if it was a freebie music video, whatever it was. We had to make it worked to the best of our ability and mm. so we would keep learning. And I think on some of those early jobs where we were doing it hands-on, uh, in that case at, at the production companies, Edit Suites in-house, there was a lot of problem solving along the way and it wasn't a smooth process then and the technology was really just barely capable of doing what we were asking it to do. And yet the creative freedom and the flexibility of the process there meant that with those clients, once we went down that path, they really didn't want to go back to doing it the conventional way. And that, I think, for us was a big kind of light bulb moment. Mm. I think there was also a point where, you know, we used to have an office and yeah. it was right within the same building. But we, we learned very early on when our eldest was a baby that because so much of our work, we needed both of us to be there, even going across a courtyard meant that we would have to hire babysitters yeah. to ensure that we could actually check it together and make sure the babies were okay. <laughs> so. And that, that's when we kind of started going, well, okay, we need to have this set up at home so that we can continue working after we've put the baby to bed. Yeah. And then kind of the logical extension of that became, well, if we can do all this at home, why do we have an office? And one of the big turning points there as well was that clients stopped expecting to come in and sit at the back of the suite because it got to the point where people were much happier to click on a link and watch it at their desk. Mm. I think the other thing that happened was as we started to go on location with the kids as well, we realised how important the new technology was in making it work because we, mobility became just as big a factor as working from home. We had an edit suite, I remember, set up in a hotel room in Singapore for months on end. Yeah. That's where that kind of idea of that mobile post-production suite happened and we just kept expanding and experimenting and now... Well, if we can do that, well, why can't why we can't do, do this? this? Exactly. And now we can do it all out of a backpack, you know. Yeah. We can do both the... The edit, the colour grade, the mix. And I guess as we've done more and more of that, the technology has also been catching up mm. with that. And so what you can do on a laptop now compared to what you could do 
on a major desktop workstation mm. 10 years ago is pretty amazing. Yeah, because we're not talking just your basic grade or your mix. No. We're talking about taking it to the highest level we can, working with as many power windows as you want to, you know, to shade just the lower third if you want to do that. It's playing with the highlights. It's, it's really going in and actually just picking out a colour and adjusting that. It's all those really Designing subtle... custom looks for each project. Exactly. Working at 4K and without using proxies in the grading process is just routine for us now. Mm. We're finishing the 4K doco and that is something that I was editing on the fly on location in situ and the circumstances of that meant that I had to just be ready for anything. It's a very, very manoeuvrable way of working. Yeah, and a big part of that, I think, making that work as smoothly as it worked on that project was the fact that because you were working with the MacBook Pro that had four terabytes of internal SSD storage, it meant that you could work with full resolution proxy files, but with all of the media on the laptop. So you weren't juggling external drives to make that that functional. And so that made it all the more mobile. You could actually just open up the laptop and start cutting. Yes, but it's it's the whole process. It's not just production or post. It's from the idea stage. I write on small laptop computer using Final Draft, and that's how I'll write the script. And then, but the script now happens concurrently with me creating an animatic, and that's mm. also through the laptop. You know, I can either bring all the visual references and cut them into a timeline, or use the placeholders out of you know Final Cut Pro X, or oh, the iPad now as well to start storyboarding some ideas. You know, I have an idea for a shot. It's better for me to visualize it and see. Oh, okay. And this is what I can add a little bit more of. I can add a beat here. I can. It needs a little bit more dialogue to make that scene work properly emotionally. The animatics and the beats that you can get. I'm concurrently using, you know, four different devices at once. I've got my iPhone that I always do my research on because that's, and, I've got to have recording that recording the voiceover. Oh, you know, temp voiceover. And then I've got my iPad for the actual drawing through Procreate. And then I've got, you know, one laptop where I've got the script open. And then I've got the, uh, the MacBook Pro where I'm actually cutting. So it is constantly juggling all those different devices in order to make the the final product work. All that preparation then speeds up the production and post-production parts of the process enormously. Absolutely. Because once we've finished on a shoot, what happens immediately after that is that you will prep all the edit files for me so that I've got the proxies or the full res versions ready to edit. And what I've found as well has helped me along the way is uh, doing my own sound design because as I cut together a scene and I know that it's fairly close to being locked off, I'll test it by adding in a little bit of um, spot effects mm. and just see how they work and how they are helping add the emotion or the the rhythm to a scene that I'm looking for. Then from there, once I'm happy with that, that goes to you and you start the colour grade and the sound mix. Mm. So in that process, what we're doing is we're using uh, DaVinci Resolve to, to prep the proxy files for the editing and that's more about being able to control the look of the footage through the edit and it's something that even though a lot of the time it's only us looking at it through that process we still find it's enormously useful to actually be looking at things that represent what we were planning to shoot and what we're looking at in camera so having the LUT applied but then also being able to render that down to proxy level files that can be 
very easy to work with and fit directly on the laptop within the Final Cut project. It just makes that so easy. Mm. I guess more recently, we've also ad- been adapting all of our projects and putting it through the ACES post path yeah. because of the flexibility and the speed at which then, you you know, once you've gone through the ACES pipeline, there are many different versions that we need to output, whether it be HDR, whether it be the Rec. 709, whether it be... P3 DCI, exactly. DCP etc etc just to give you an overview of how we're approaching this in terms of apps we're preparing the proxy files in davinci resolve which also means that the footage is already there in a davinci project ready to go and managed and organized before we start the common form process now clara likes to edit in final cut 10 and that's also really efficient in a very self-contained way because the project can manage all of the media internally within the project file. And so with the proxy workflow that we're using on most projects at the moment, that's a, that's a fantastic way to do that. And it's a very fast editing environment, which is, I think, pretty important to you. It is really important. I just realised another of the big advantages, I think, in having it all in-house is just that time to experiment. Yeah. And even within the project, we're always experimenting to try and figure out how can we push it harder? How can we make it faster? How yep. can we, what if we did this? What if we did that? And all of that just has helped condense our inefficiencies our of, yeah. of other processes and work out what has been the most effective. There's still so much debate about ACEs and HDR and colour grading mm. for HDR. What As, order to do things, exactly. et cetera, and et cetera. what we discovered through experimentation was we thought logically the best way to get an HDR version of a project would be to do the 1,000-nit version first. Yeah. And, and then, you know, down-raise from that. It's so logical. Yeah, but what was really surprising was in practice, it didn't actually work because once you were used to it at that thousand nit level, it was really hard then to go back to a hundred nit level, let alone a two hundred nit level, and be comfortable with what you're seeing because you just wanted the thousand nit. Where it's, it's, it's it's hard psychologically, I think, for human beings to give away what you've had. Yes. It's 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 easier to do the smaller version and then, and then expand that out, out and go, wow, we've now got this bigger palette to yeah. play with rather than going, yep, we've got it how we want it and now we've got to compromise it. And I think also because, you know, when you're doing grading for a cinema as well, you need to have the, the room so dark. And again, we're working in-house, so we have blinds that we can pull down and we can make it fairly dark. Yep. But when you're, great, when you're doing your cinema version, they're only at 48 nits. So... It's very difficult to... We can control the environment. Yeah, but it's but not the same experience. the adjustment. Yeah, and this, that psychologically as well as a director, you're looking at a monitor screen and it's just not the same experience. And you're trying to reconcile that with this is what's going to be projected out there in that darkened theatre. And then you've got all of this um, extra information in your H- HDR grade and... What's also been interesting, I think, for us is learning through, again, experimentation with projects. That skin tone at a 1,000 nits is a very uh, different ballgame. Yeah, it's very strange and it looks very unnatural to show skin tone at a 1,000 nits unless you're doing some very strange sci-fi, you know, post-apocalyptic world. You know, for natural skin tones, you're looking at maybe pushing to about 400 nits is where it seems to be the most comfortable. Mm. The converse of that is with landscapes. 
it's shockingly beautiful to be pushing it all the way to a thousand and finding that there is so much in that image and the information there you can the detail is is amazing both in you know really bright white so when you're seeing a scene of uh, lots of the, just snow yeah. the the variations of the the white that you see and then the detail of maybe if you see the the ski lift operating in the far left corner of screen it's amazing to to watch that and play with that mm. and then you know push the eye f- uh, further towards something with your color grade and and maybe we should come back and do a whole episode on HDR and what we've been discovering there because it's 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 a huge area and it's, there's going to be a huge impact from that. But I guess the, maybe the big takeaway from all of that is by doing stuff at home and having complete control of the process, it's possible to experiment with things that you might not be inclined to experiment with if you were using a conventional process and all the different people that would be involved in that. I think there's also a misconception that you can't do big projects when you're working from home. Yeah. And I think clients are so used to wanting to – thinking bigger is better. Yeah. But I think if, if the COVID-19 has taught us anything is that, you know, <laughs> smaller is safer. Yeah. And so – what this means practically for us is that over the years we've realised that by handpicking your team and you've got your you know your loyal crew that you work with and we've worked with the same team for the past 15 20 years experience buys so much and that relationship that you have with all your heads of department and we we work remotely with a lot of our crew yeah and that's become a more and more efficient thing to do where we the uh, VFX artists, our composer, our composer who lives, you know, 15 minutes away and also works from home. But a lot of the time, it's actually just more efficient to work remotely with transferring files over the internet. So that's really become such an efficient process now. Mm. There's and, so much. Yeah, and so, you know, transferring EXR sequences because you're dealing with a shot here, a shot there, but full res EXR sequences in and out of that process is, is fine. It's not a big deal anymore so that opens up all sorts of possibilities we're dealing with people there who are manageable distances away if we had to be face to face but there's actually nothing stopping us from working with people anywhere in the world as well and that really opens up a lot of possibilities Mm. there are certain things that we outsource because what while i do the sound design i don't want to do the foley and so we have our uh, uh, you know foley Foley artists artists that that we we work with remotely again and, and i think those are those are areas where there's just no reason not to work with people remotely and there's no reason not to work with people who are working from home and i think this is one of the big things that's going to come out of the whole coronavirus crisis is things that were fringe ideas for a long time and that there's been a lot of resistance from big companies to particularly like dealing with people who are all working from home suddenly become necessary to the point where it's going to be very hard to go back and say well you can't work that way anymore Mm. and the thing about working with people who are working from home is that we don't care how many hours they put in as long as the job gets done gets done right and that is isn't it and it's the flexibility for us as parents because we want to do the you know the school drop off and the pick up and yep. and we want to have this the time with our kids and we often ask our kids this isn't normal (laughs) that most you know mums and dads they go they go off to work and you guys uh have us around most of the time now some of that time we can't pay you attention because the nature of our job there are 
pockets of time where both of us are just full on on the project. Yep. When we're when we're on, we're on. Yeah, and I guess it's another part of this whole thing is the idea of flexibility with time. It, it's a double edged sword for sure. Because you have flexibility with time, time management becomes actually all the more critical. It, it evolves as your children grow as well. Yeah. As babies, it was okay during you know feeding time or nap time that would get stuff done. And then as they go off to preschool or school, it's okay during those hours that they're actually away. That's where we get everything done. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they go to bed, with I think with writing with posts, there's always niggly things that you can keep doing. So we've accepted that our priority list that we used to love to just check off, yeah. we can't check off anymore because we never finish absolutely everything. Some, sometimes it the lunch boxes aren't as great as you'd like them to be but oh he's laughing at me now <laughs> it's yeah it's what you can be comfortable with and what you know that you need to do to make it work for your family yep. the other element of that is that with that flexibility there's always a temptation to go okay well we want to be there for the kids when they get home from school spend some quality time with them that kind of thing and so there you've got you know a few hours of work that doesn't get done at that point in time when it's still business hours. And so you just go, okay, well, I'll do that after they go to bed. As much as we do do that, the risk in that is that you're never off. And I think what we've found over time is that for a short period of time, you can absolutely, anybody can work around the clock. And if you're doing something you love, the temptation is to do that all the time. And what we've found more and more as we've done this is you need to actually apply more discipline to having downtime than you do to having work time. Yes, having that balance as well of choosing and being able, because we do have our own production company, of taking the kids with us wherever possible. Where we're just doing locations is fantastic because the kids get to go on long road trips. Luckily, they're both good in cars. But granddad often comes along to help to help out uh, if we're doing interviews for a doco or, you know, if there's dialogue for a scene or, you know, there's other other variables in there that make it more tricky in, with some of the scenes within a project to work with kids. And especially because, you know, kids are different. So we've got one kid that is really easy on set no matter where we are, but we've got the other kid that is a bit more high maintenance and requires a bit, <laughs> a bit more <laughs> attention. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just how things work and we've just had to learn to be a little bit more flexible and work around it. With all of this experience and background of having been doing this and doing this juggle for years now, it's still surprising me what an adjustment it is to having us both home 24-7 and having the kids home and trying to learn all the time. It's, oh, yeah. it's different to even school holidays are a, a, a version of this and, you know, we're very adept at managing the kids and work through school holidays. But having them at home when it's not school holidays and trying to keep their, their minds engaged and learning and still get work done is a whole different level of challenge. And I think a lot of people in the industry and in other industries who are suddenly working from home, mm. are, are, they're going from kind of zero to 100 all mm. at once because they're suddenly having to work at home and, and manage their time in the home environment, which has that inherent challenge of there's always other distractions and there's always a temptation to keep working and so getting that work-life balance in some ways is actually harder than having all of that challenge at once, which we've spent years kind of getting our heads around, and then suddenly also having the, the kids at home and trying to learn at the same time 
it's a huge, huge challenge all at once. And and I think it's if, if anyone is struggling with getting up to speed with all of that at the same time, don't worry. That makes perfect sense. It doesn't mean anything's wrong. <laughs> so much of parenthood is like, oh, well, it probably production. means you're doing it all right. <laughs> exactly. It is. It, it is. Every day has its challenges and you're constantly adjusting. And I guess that if there's any lesson to be learnt from having done this for 11 years as parent and production company, that mm. is, it's that you do have to just adjust to what is happening. Yep. And so we're a lot more adept at not being so hard on ourselves when we can't get everything right. I, and that's you, been really yeah. slow and hard to learn. It, well, as a director, sometimes I used to have the luxury of spending a whole week doing a treatment and, you know. Now you're turning them out in a few hours. Yeah, because I have to. The treatment has to win us the job. Yeah. So it's just managing that and that's where technology, again, can help. Even on Instagram, you know, just saving them into various projects. I know that if I see a shot, uh, you know, a picture that I really like and inspires me in some way, then I, I will save it and save it within a project called whatever it might be a current project might be a project coming out but i know that there's a certain emotion that is attached to that or is a certain theme so i'll save it under those sort of folders and i find that saves me a lot of time when i have to come up with visual references and and links etc the other thing i guess speed wise for us is that treatment i also use it's structured in such a way that once we win a project that the crew will have so it's it's already there i don't have to prepare something separate before the meeting they can have the treatment so they know where my head is what i'm seeing as the images how i want this to flow so there's a lot of shorthand there that becomes an anchor for the the approach exactly project yeah the other thing that keeps coming up i guess in this conversation is speed of everything and it's one of the things that I, I think when you imagine working from home and doing that, having control of the whole process at home, you think that time is going to be on your side and it's just not. There's so much pressure in that in a strange way. And, and so making the process as efficient and flexible at every step of the way has become way more important for us now than it was when we had the separate office outside of home Mm. and and more so again than when we were working for other production companies. Mm. It's true because real life has to continue and honestly, okay, you've got your work but it's going to be your family that is going to take priority. So if a kid's sick, then you've got to spend the time with your kid to look after them. You've never missed a deadline, you know, or gone over budget. But you do that by planning the hours that you have and adjusting them as you go because, you know, okay, you lose a couple here. squeeze every bit of efficiency out of those hours. You push it further in in, in, in the next part of the timeline. And I guess that's also why we don't have that script development, that whole traditional classic filmmaking pipeline anymore. It is a lot more merged so we can trim time at every point. So it's not like you've got to finish this task before you can start that one. As much as possible, we try to have things happening concurrently. And that can be great creatively as well because those different processes, like the, say the grade and the mix, can be feeding off each other creatively. As you add resonance to stuff with the mix, you can draw on that and apply that same emotional level to the grade. Mm. What's grown out of never having enough 
proper time to color grade and sound mix something has meant that that's why I've picked up the sound design at the beginning because I know the different types of sounds that I want to hear mm. in a scene and the the kind of colors that we're working with so now what, what Ben and I do is we custom create a lot per project so that we already know where this look is going to go yep. the client already knows where this look is going to go yeah and same with the sound in creating some of those sounds early on I know that they will be used so we already they'll know they'll stay with the project the edit, all the way through the whole way through and so again between the the edit and the sound mix isn't this big process of track laying all the sound design that is all happening concurrently with the edit and then that feeds the creative process for the editing for for Clara so that that's all part of the edit as it grows and then that flows through into the the sound mix so the sound mixing we're doing in Logic Pro we've been doing that for that's close to 10 years as mm. well and and that's that's a great process as well and a great example of how contained things have become because people expect that to do a big sound mix you need a big desk and a big studio and it's just not the case anymore and you know we've done uh, our main sound mixing machine is an iMac that's a few years old and we're very reluctant to move on from that because we've got so many plugins in there and it's so finely tuned and it runs logic beautifully and we've had mixes with 240 over 240 tracks of eight channel surround sound 7.1 surround sound all getting mixed simultaneously in real time and controlling that from a usb control surface that's got nine faders on it and because you can jump around that mix and so with that control surface that's only a little bit bigger than a laptop you can control that many channels you can have direct control over which years ago was just impossible if you if you wanted to control a mix that big you needed that many faders mm. and you can now control that many faders in a tactile direct intuitive way but without having that bigger room mm. for it and that bigger desk and things like we know that with the sound mix what we've also learned through experience is that we really love to use the console one because it gives us so many different analog emulations over the years you start to know which one that you would ordinarily start with to get you the the type of feel that you want and so being able to, because the console one's got the hardware and software working together it works really well because it gives you that flexibility to go okay well this should be an ssl 4000 or this should be an ssl 9000 kind of sound or this should be a neve or a Harrison and you can kind of you can recreate those sounds very very accurately within the plugin but also by having the hardware controller where you can grab the dials and quickly control the levels of the compression and the EQ and all of these elements so directly and intuitively again it enables you to move fast with all that stuff so that feeds back around into this thing of we can be creative because we're working quickly Mm. And I guess the one thing with so many filmmakers now at home is, yes, it's the time, but it's also the means to actually just keep practicing because we've just kept practicing and that's yep. the only reason why we're now more confident at going, yeah, no, we can absolutely do it this way and guarantee creative quality that will take it all the way through that process and know that, yes, we can deliver on that. And we're not saying that anybody can get up to speed on that instantly. That's a big ask, definitely. But... At the same time, if you do put in the, the legwork and start getting up to speed on those processes, download the free version of DaVinci Resolve and put it on your MacBook Pro and start experimenting with the different controls, experiment with what's possible there, drag some footage in. And that stuff that 
15 years ago when we first started doing hands-on grading on a desktop system was really, really difficult Mm. and limited. Now you can be working with Resolve on a laptop. It is that practice of familiarity of things. There is a learning curve. As there is with any of these things, there's some sort of learning curve. But the other great thing is there are so many YouTube uh, tutorials out there that you can get up to speed very, very quickly. Mm. And in a way that you know, used to not be able to. I remember, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator when I first started using. Man, the 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 learning curves there, or going from Avid to Final Cut. That yeah. that's another head spin. Yeah, yeah. And also being able to move around between different apps for different purposes. Like, uh, you know, I know you you love cutting in Final Cut. Um, I'm finding cutting in Resolve for me the way my mind works. I'm finding that faster these days but I know for you it's not and so we've got the flexibility to to go okay well we've got both apps on all the machines so mm. it, it becomes a very fluid kind of workflow process where mm. okay I'm cutting this project so I'm going to do that in resolve and you're doing that project so you're going to cut that in final cut mm. but it all comes together in resolve for the finishing and the workflow from there is not really any different yeah so it's there's a lot of freedom with that stuff now where there even a few years ago that having that kind of freedom was very, very complex. Mm. And it's just, you know, personal preference. I love scrubbing audio and making sure that I can see it you know, visually and, and, you know. And it I, drives me crazy. <laughs> and it, it really is up to your own individual style of working yep. to figure out through this kind of trial and error what works best for you. H- having said that, and I do love cutting and resolve, there was a, a documentary project which I finished last year. I was working on for two years, which I cut and I do like to keep my hands in with editing. And it was a World War II documentary called Dutch Courage that's on the History Channel in Australia at the moment. I chose to cut that entirely within Final Cut Pro because I wanted to have the flexibility, two things. I knew we were going to have footage coming from here, there and everywhere in all sorts of different formats and having to bring that together. And that was going to be very easy in Final Cut. Resolve can definitely do that, but Final Cut manages that stuff very seamlessly. And the other reason was I wanted to have the flexibility, even though I didn't end up doing this very much, I wanted to have the flexibility to go, okay, I need to move this onto the desktop and work there, or I would need to be able to move it onto a laptop and work there. And so because the Final Cut project file can sit on an external drive with all of the media there and you can literally just plug that drive in and open it up on another machine and it's all fully functional and up and running, because it's all self-contained, it's very easy to move around between different machines. And so a lot of this stuff is driven not just by personal preference but also by process and what the the particular project requires. Mm. I guess my hope for filmmaking during this time is that as people start to realise how much is possible with the technology we have now and it's that combination of having your own gear and and then having the technology. And, and having your own gear used to mean you had to be like George Lucas or George Miller or Robert Rodriguez. You could have your own mixing and grading and editing facilities. Now you can literally have all that in a backpack. Mm. And, and it's up to the skill and the experience of the filmmaker to be able to produce to whatever level is required. Perhaps until now, people or you know clients are used to thinking, okay, the, the bigger the crew, the, the better the production is going to be. And through And this- there are things that need a big crew. Like if you're doing big battle scenes, 
um, with hundreds of extras, you need a big crew to manage that. You need big lights to light that area and, mm. and so on and so forth. But if you're doing, say, a colour grade and you need 17 power windows on a shot to bring out all of the life that's mm. in that material and make it the best it can be, there is really nothing stopping you from doing that on whatever gear you've got available. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you first start out in film school, you dream of the big sets, the big crews and everything. And it is fun. It is. It's a lot of fun, all the big toys and everything. Yeah. But I think as you evolve as filmmakers, there's you crave simplicity and especially mm. as parents as well, in order to juggle all of that, you just want to get the product the best it can be. You just want to be and creative and have all of that yeah, melt away. Exactly, and start to figure out, okay, what is the best process to do this? And if we're juggling the family as well as the, the business and we want to keep creating to the best quality we can, then what do we need for that? And I think what we've evolved to, I guess, at this point in our careers is that there's a lot that we have learnt over the years and have practised with that can make small crews very, very efficient. There are a lot of things that we can do with just the two of us and a music and a mm. production design that make it very, very efficient, both time-wise and, and budget-wise. And with certain things, more efficient than having more resources. Yes. Because there's a nimbleness that comes from being contained. Mm. But, but there's that level that you want to go to where we've done all the schlepping of gear and stuff. We don't want yeah. to do that anymore. <laughs> We've paid our dues, so we want to be able to work with enough assistance when when we get back to normal to make this all work. And that's the beauty of it. You start to work out, okay, what's a comfortable level for you? How do you like to work? And with post-production particularly, I think, but also shooting and prep, what's possible now is to work at not just a high level of quality but a high level of workflow without necessarily having a huge facility. And that may sound like stating the perfectly obvious or restating what I've said before, but there's another layer to that where traditionally you would think that, okay, working in 4K or working in ACES for a, a small little contained project is, is too heavy-handed. And I think we've reached a point where the technology and the, the software and the processes are advanced enough that I thought about it the other day. I was going to do a little tiny video post thing in Rec. 709 natively instead of in Aces. And, you know, within minutes I was kicking myself going, oh, this would be easier in Aces. With so much of this stuff, there's an initial learning curve, which can be quite steep with some things like Aces or getting into DaVinci Resolve or just working out the workflow. But once you get past that initial learning curve, then there's incredible freedom in working at that level that's that's generally reserved for the very high-end projects. And that's only time and skills. And I think that's where it, we're in interesting times because it's that skill and experience to understand if you're putting it through Aces or if you're aiming for the 1,000 nit HDR version, yeah. it keeps coming back down to workflow now because that is the way to speed up. And get more creative freedom. Yeah, and I, I and guess that's it, that's what it is. We're all after creative freedom as yeah. filmmakers and mm. we want to create the, the highest quality we can. So how can technology help us? And it can. It's the, You can really do that now and make the technology get it ironed out to the point where it becomes very transparent in the creative process. It's one of the interesting things, I think, about the situation that we're all in as a planet now where 
people suddenly have all this time at home. So many countries are in lockdown or socially distancing. And a lot of people, a lot of experienced people are sharing their knowledge very openly, um, which is, is amazing. And that's happened very, very quickly. People have gone, okay, this is a chance for me to share what I know. And, and I'm thinking off the top of my head of a number of really experienced people that are out there sharing that stuff very actively within days of this really kicking into gear. On the other side of that, there's a lot of people who are going, okay, I've got this time. I'm going to focus on learning new skills and refining my knowledge. So I do think in the film industry, we are going to come out of this with a lot of people who have used this unique situation to really up their game. I think we're going to see a lot more innovation when things get back to normal mm. and innovation in the process, innovation, creatives, innovation well, in the creative side. it's a chance to multi-skill, isn't yeah. it? And that's where I think so much of the industry is going because we all want to create Yep. And if directors can edit and then uh, cinematographers can learn how to edit and colour grade, then that's a huge win because understanding yep. the process is half the challenge, I think, in why you are taking the time to make this a better product. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a kind of clash of things there where people think you can't do high-level work without all the, you know, the big desk yeah, and all the bells and, bells and whistles. And yet they don't understand that it's the time can be the most critical thing. And so they don't want to spend time on the process. And I think you, you look at the, the most experienced producers and studios and creatives and the thing that they all clearly understand is there is no substitute for being able to put the time in, particularly in the, the finishing, the polishing stages of everything, whether that's finessing the lighting on set or finessing the colour grade or working on the script, on that, that final version of the script that, that usually gets rushed. Exactly. Through. Well, so much of the experience as a viewer is, is a, you know, is the intangible. Yeah, is that experience of all those things. But that's the polish and that's yeah. the difference between what people think is, oh, that's cheap and that's, uh, that was amazing. It's not just all the action scenes, it's also the polish. And the audience doesn't need to know why any of that stuff works. They don't need to know why it makes them feel that way. But our job as filmmakers is to understand if I do this and then this and then this, it's going to make the audience feel that. Exactly. It's all those finite... Subtle details. Subtle details and... And they all add up. It's all the, it's, you know, the thousands and thousands of little details that make you feel more of what you're trying to express as a filmmaker. And I think that's where being hands-on with so much of the process is, is very exciting creatively because it allows you to finesse details at a level that's difficult to communicate about. You know, where you can actually get in and tweak things in seconds that you could spend an hour trying to describe. And when you start applying that to multiple aspects of the process, you can do things creatively in a level of flexibility and innovation that is very, very difficult to replicate, not impossible, very difficult to replicate with a conventional process. For sure. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for people to use this time to dig deeply into all those areas where they can get creative in those subtle ways. If it's experimenting with LED lights at home and just seeing how far you can push 
this stuff. And we shoot overlay footage all the time on our dining table oh, with we a little do. light box. And we yeah, we have a little light box if we if we're doing macro shots. We've done bigger bigger scenes at home. It's just you you work with what you have and I think that is part of understanding you know, on the production side, how to maximise a, bu- a budget. Yep. What do you have and how can you make it work and look at what you have at home and figure out, okay, if I if I prop this up here, I can hide this section of the, the house. And Because it's all about illusion in filmmaking. You're creating something and you have to figure out how to sell that idea that you have and how to bring character emotion to something. How do you like to shoot? Where do you like the, the light to come in? Do you like the key light? Do you like hard light? Do you, do you like lots of uh, movement in scene do there there are so many options that i guess even with an iphone you you know you can just experiment and play with now can also be a light source um, both with the torch and with the screen (laughs) well you've got the you know the iphone 11 pro you've got the thousand nits on that so that's how we check some of our material And, and, and i think there's also there's a huge opportunity here for experienced colorists as well who maybe are suddenly having to work from home who and I know there's a lot of colorists who have started working from home and have some fantastic setups at home there's also a lot of colorists that are still used to working in a conventional facility and are suddenly at home and wanting to work without that and so there's there's a I think an opportunity to to go okay well what's what's not working about working at home and what is working and if you're used to having a perfectly calibrated grade one reference monitor to work to and you don't have that all of a sudden how much can you join the dots between what you're seeing on the scopes and what you're seeing on the screen and factoring in your knowledge of that screen i think the familiarity with the screen that we're looking at in the grade or in the in the shoot even for cinematographers becomes a huge factor if you know that one of the characteristics of this display that I'm working with is that it does this unusual thing you can actually learn to factor that in and and while yes it's great not to have to do that it's also a very powerful skill to to hone and and to be able to look at a display and go okay I can see that's what it's showing me but I can also see through that to the underlying image Mm. It, it is a great chance also if you do write and direct try and work out how to get your script onto the the edit timeline and mix and match have some you know use the placeholder yeah play yeah. with animatics and just get a sense of structure because that's going to save you time in not having to shoot extraneous scenes that you don't need and knowing the timing you know cinematographers have to be very aware of okay they've got five minutes for a shot or they've got 20 minutes for a shot and what you can do within that time it's also you know how much time you need to plan and block a certain scene all of that you know and going back to the old-fashioned mud maps Mm. and working out okay camera positioning how many setups you're going to have how much coverage you're going to need for this and i guess if if there's one overarching takeaway that i hope people get out of listening to this podcast and also get out of this strange time that we're in is that we've found ourselves because of circumstance in this position where we've been able to get our hands dirty with so much of the process and and develop that over a number of years and we're at a point now where we're very grateful for being in that position even without these circumstances because it's it's just it's a wonderful process and some wonderful creative freedom i hope this circumstance gives a lot of people 
the opportunity and the incentive to start exploring that and and discovering what an amazing process that can be. And the high level that you can achieve that creative expression. And you can enjoy achieving. For sure. (laughs) Clara, thanks for stopping in. Thank you. That was Clara Chong brought to you with the support of our sponsors, MZ Online Training and ARI Australia. See you next time. Back to a normal episode of the T-Stop In.